This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 14th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, broadcasting this week from a very hot Phoenix and soon to get hotter Phoenix uh, for this week. And we'll be talking about some developments in cases and also some IRS announcements that impact federal taxes. Specifically this week, we're going to be looking at the IRS has published a set of Q&As on their website. Again, I don't like that for the various reasons that I don't like this publication of IRS positions on websites that can be changed just at will by the service, but they did on the Enhanced Child and Dependent Care Credit, something that is fairly significant that you really should probably be aware of for the upcoming season. A couple of reasons for that, but we'll discuss some things that we got here. We also have a tax court case this week involving a malpractice settlement a taxpayer received from their counsel in divorce. And the question of, does this represent taxable income to the taxpayer? Does it not? We'll talk about the issues in this case, about how it was determined it was taxable to her, but also the issue that was kind of under the surface here that came up at at the court was, it was fairly obvious that the IRS was not seeing an important other issue that presumably I would expect her counsel or advisors noticed at some point, and then the risk of going to court in that scenario. And that also came back to bite her, as while the IRS may not have noticed this up through the notice of deficiency, uh, the attorneys trying the case for the IRS did notice the problem. And that ended up actually causing the taxpayer to face a higher tax bill than she would have faced had she just accepted the notice of deficiency, at least on paper. Finally, we're going to look at the IRS's discussion of the interaction of depreciation-based adjustments under 41A and how that all impacts ATI here through the year 2021. So we'll take a look at that background. So let's start out here with what's on the IRS's website this week, which is entitled Child Independent Tax Credit FAQs. This is the IRS website, and it was published on the 11th of June, and all of these questions are posted as 11 June. Now, standard caveat, the IRS can change this webpage at any day at any time, They are generally noting when they do change questions that they will put the date up there like they did with this when they first published it. But you do have to be aware and keep your eye on this if any of this represents things you plan to rely upon going forward. So be aware that this, as I've said before, can change. I'm not a fan of the IRS doing doing what's essentially uh, guidance by web page. I understand why it happened. I can explain why it started happening. But unfortunately, the theory is that, you know, we don't want the IRS using sub-regulatory guidance uh, to issue significant guidance, which was the position of a former head, uh, in this case, of the Office of Management and Budget uh, in the prior administration. That sounds good on paper, but what's happened in reality is we've just pushed it down to things are even easier for the service to radically change day to day. And again, for practical purposes, for most of us, You know, the real question is going to be in an exam, what's the agent going to go along with? Because, again, unless there's enough money in in play, 
it's not going to make sense even to appeal many of these cases because appellate the representation work at the appellate level is going to cost more than the tax in question, and certainly it's not going to be worth going to court over the issue. But I digress. This one is not, what we have right now is really not bad on this. Now, if you weren't aware, we had a greatly expanded child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 passed back in March. Effectively, what this bill does is it changes the maximum expenses for the child and dependent care credit to $8,000 from a much lower number. And if you have more than one child, it goes to $16,000. The max credit also increases to 50% from what had been 35%. And we don't start phasing it down from 50% until we get to a much higher level of taxable income or AGI than we had before. So a lot of taxpayers are going to get the full 50%. Under the prior law, the maximum credit was 35%. But my own take was you looked at that and you realized that anybody that qualified for that probably couldn't afford to pay for the child care to begin with. So the reality was by the time you could actually afford to pay for the child care, uh, we were at a 20% credit. So we have a chance now to get much larger and refundable. So even for some of those, you know, that have little taxable income, if they are paying for this, we're looking at a 50% subsidy, at least up to the $8,000, $16,000 level for these cases. So that can be really, really useful. Now, we take a look at this and we talk about on this the issue of, you know, what's the credit, what's the phase in? And basically, the credit, as I said, that's 50%. Uh, it does eventually totally phase out. So again, your adjusted gross income gets above 125000 We start reducing it from 50%. What's going to happen is we're going to reduce it down to 20 on a first brush of reducing the credit. But then this adds something new. Actually reducing the credit again a second time when your adjusted gross income starts going above $400,000. So at $438,000 dollars $438,001, $438,001, get the right time there, the credit's gone entirely. That didn't used to happen. We used to get to the 20% and stay put. Now, admittedly, the credits weren't very big with the limits we had before, but you still got the credit even if you made $10 million. Now we're going to be losing it this year on the lower end or on the higher end, but it is potentially refundable at the upper end. Now, one condition, though, for it to be refundable is that essentially you must have the U.S. residency to get it. So if your client, for instance, is currently living in, you know, Spain, let's say, you know, Italy, Japan, uh, they can still get the credit, but what they cannot get is the refundable portion of the credit. So the refundable portion of the credit is only available for those who have a U.S. residence, right? Which means your permanent residence is here. You can be temporarily away from home uh, and you'll be treated as living in the main home. But generally, if you're overseas, it won't work. Now, U.S. territories are fine as long as you meet the rules for the territorial's own tax system in this area. So you always have to kind of look inside there. But 
The problem is if you're outside the U.S. or its territories, then the refundable part of this credit cannot essentially work for this period, right? Now, the interesting aside, though, is if you are in the U.S. military and stationed outside the U.S., we have an exception for that. So even though I may be stationed outside for an extended period of time, we're going to treat you as residing in the U.S. for that purpose. So that's kind of useful. The other thing this does, and this may help you fend off some clients who are trying to stretch the definition of what are work-related expenses. Now, previously, it probably didn't matter because they usually accumulated enough of the other stuff anyway, so it didn't matter what they did. We also saw the IRS also indirectly approach this in a information letter uh, that we talked about earlier this year uh, that related to 125 plans and the problems due to COVID and the person that said, well, I, I had already deferred into my child, you know, my child dependent care uh, payment deferral uh, to pay for the kid's summer camp. And the IRS said, well, you know, first thing is, you know, the law doesn't allow the refund of that. And then secondly, uh, you might want to double check that whole summer camp routine to see if that's going to work. Well, in the FAQs, they come back and they give us a lot of details about work-related expenses. A lot of it is stuff you're aware of about the earned income rules, that you have to have earned income to do this. If you are a student, uh, you know, there are certain special presumed amounts of earned income you can get. Uh, they do mention that, you know, it does need to be any payments. And this is going to be where these issues come up. Any amounts paid must be paid principally to allow the taxpayer to work. So that's to be the primary goal of the payment. If that's not the primary goal, uh, then we have a problem. So we'll talk about some of the issues. Now, they did discuss issues here about can you pay the amount to a relative? That is, could you pay it to, you know, in this issue, like, you know, the question exa example here, somebody pays their mother to watch their children during the day. Does that count? Uh, generally, yes, unless you can claim mom as a dependent. Uh, you can also claim payments made to other relatives, even if they live in your house, but you can't count them if they essentially can be claimed as a dependent by you or your spouse. Uh, if it's a child who is under age 19, even if not a dependent, uh, you know, any person who is your spouse at any time during the year paying your spouse, even with a separate return, you cannot file, you cannot make claim child care credit for paying them. And you can't claim it uh, for the parent of your qualifying person if the person's also your child and under age 13. So that gets around the unmarried groups, right? You know, the, quote, living in sin groups. So that's the rules for paying relatives. Now, as always, you're going to be reporting these people and how much they have. They remind you that you're going to need their ID number. They remind you you can get a Form W-10 that you can present to the parties providing child care that they're supposed to fill in and give you those numbers. And normally, if you don't get the numbers, you can't claim the credit. However, they do mention that if you can show that you took reasonable steps to get that and were unable to get it, which means you're going to turn in the person pretty openly on this issue, that uh, you might still qualify for the credit. This is going to be way more significant this year with the 50% and the higher limits. And the fact that people with higher income, you know, I mean, 125 may not be a huge amount of income, but it's way better than what we had in the 35% phase-up. 
And again, as it's refundable, somebody in that range getting the 50% is almost certainly going to be seeing a, you know, I would suspect a tax refund based on this, especially since they're probably also getting the increased child credit. So be aware of how this thing works. Now, they also talk about here something that clients always love to do. That is, they want to go ahead and say, well, I'm paying for overnight camp for my kid. You know, summer camp's coming up. They're going to go away, be on overnight camp for two weeks. Can't I use that as child care expenses? And the answer is child-dependent care expenses. The answer is no. The IRS says, nope, it doesn't. Arguably, their position is that an overnight camp is not principally a child care facility. So they not operate under the rules of child independent care facilities. And as such, payments to those don't qualify. They also say similarly, payments to a private kindergarten. You know, you're sending your kid to school. You send them to a private school. Can you take that payment? Answer is no, but then they go on and tell you. But if you are paying for an after-school program, uh, that probably will qualify because that's the time that they're not in school and you're paying extra for, you know, somebody to essentially take care of the child once school ends for the day. That program probably does qualify for purposes of the work-related rules. If you've not looked at this credit, especially the increased size of it, you might want to take a look at this now, especially as things calm down. Uh, we do have the link to the FAQ inner materials and on the website. So you can take a look at that and, you know, just kind of see how things are going to run based on that. Next up, we have a interesting case in this question, Holiday versus Commissioner. And Holiday versus Commissioner deals very specifically with the problem of when are legal settlements taxable. Now, the Holiday case is Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2021-69, and it was issued on June the 7th. Now, let's talk about where we're sitting right now. So here's basically what ends up happening with this. And now we get to a malpractice settlement. Uh, Ms. Holiday filed for her, her spouse qualified, former spouse for divorce in 2010. Um, you know, they she and her attorney participated in mediation. Her attorney advised her to go through the mediation issue, right? Uh, she executed a mediated settlement agreement. Um, eventually, she objected to it. But the court didn't sustain. They said, nope, you signed this agreement. You're stuck with it. She claimed she got bad advice. Uh, in 2012, the court entered a final decree. In May, the, her attorney filed a motion for a new trial and stated that she had received 70, just under $75,000 less than her equal share of the community estate should have provided for. Uh, the motion was denied. Again, I suspect the court came back and said, you know, you agree to this settlement agreement. Don't don't come back now and say I got buyer's remorse. That's going to be the issue. Now, her divorce attorney told her that he would appeal that order by the court, but the appeal never took place. Needless to say, she was not thrilled with this result, right? She filed a malpractice case. Uh, she claimed his representation represented negligence and gross negligence, and he breached the duty of fair dealing and fiduciary duty by influencing her to mediate and enter into a transaction that was not fair to her under the circumstances, meaning to sign the agreement they had negotiated in the mediation, right? Uh, she later amended that petition to add claims for deceptive trade chat practices, treble damages, attorney's fees, 
uh, you know, and in support, she said, basically, um, she gave information about her former spouse's retirement plan. Presumably they hadn't, she claims an account for that, right? Um, you know, the attorney's alleged failures and the stress she had with this mediation, another part of the litigation. She also added facts to support the, the deceptive trade practices claim, including her attorney failed to properly plead claims related to her former spouse's fraud on the marital estate. She sought damages for, for pecuniary and compensatory losses, including damages for past and future mental anguish, suffering, anxiety, humiliation, loss ability to enjoy life, right? She wants punitive damages. She wants to get back the fees she paid. And all of this was part of her claim. Now, this settlement, this case, like a lot of such cases, ends up getting settled outside of court. In October of 2014, uh, she and the attorney uh, entered into a settlement agreement. And essentially, the agreement said, while there remain significant disagreements as to the merits of the claim and the allegations asserted by the parties to this lawsuit, they've agreed to compromise and settle such claims and allegations without an admission of fault or liability on the part of any party. And under consideration, they said she would agree, you know, her attorney would agree to pay her $175,000 in consideration for the mutual promises and obligations set forth in this release. And the release released each other from all claims related to the malpractice lawsuit. In exchange for the proceeds, all claims which include those of whatever kind or character, known or unknown, which she might have against the attorney arising out of the whole lawsuit situation, and, you know, nobody admitted liability, as we said, and fault. And they did not allocate the proceeds toward any particular type of damage. Okay, so she's got this thing. This is not all that unusual. Um, the plaintiff, you know, the plaintiff's attorney, the one representing her, normally is going to want to allege as many potential ways that she is justified to be paid as he or she can, because you never know if you go to trial, you know, what exactly is the court or the trier of fact going to, you know, launch on to, depending upon the nature of the trial. So you want to have every possible issue out there to, you know, give you the most chance of getting traction somewhere. Conversely, if you are the taxpayer, if, if you're the defendant's counsel, when you're trying to negotiate a settlement before you go to court, uh, you're going to want to have this thing cover every possible claim, the ones that are in the lawsuit right now, and even ones they might think of later, right? We don't want to settle this one and then still face other claims. So it's not unusual to face the situation of having a laundry list of potential ways that she's owed money. And then to have a settlement agreement that says it covers every way she might be owed money by this party due to whatever happened. And, you know, and they're not going to allocate it somewhere. They're not going to say it all represents X because, you know, they want to say it represents the entire bundle. Therefore, there's adequate consideration for having wiped out the entire liability. That's great. But on taxes, it's going to cause us some problems. Now, she said, okay, come on, guys. At the end of the day, this was over her divorce. Her real concern was, of course, her view is this merely gave her back the funds that she would have received, or at least the value that she would have received had the 
attorney done his or her job and her property settlement would have been larger from her former spouse. So she claims it was a tax-free return of capital. Now, the nature of a lawsuit generally is true. If it's a tax-free return of cap, if it's a return of capital, it's tax-free. Let's take the simple case of an automobile accident. Right? You are in an auto accident. You're not injured, but the property. So you know your your car is in the parking lot, and somebody you know backs into it. Well, that's a nature of a legal claim and obligation. And you go, you know, basically the other party then, normally the insurance company, is going to assure to settle the claim, to pay you an amount, which let's face it, your damages are based on how much it's going to cost to fix that car and get it back into the shape it was in before, you know, somebody backed into it in the parking lot. That's non-taxable because all we are doing is restoring your capital, right? Restoring an asset, you to the asset types you had before. That's tax-free. However, in general, lawsuit settlements, you know, if we can't find them, because we do interpret income under Code Section 61, all income from all sources broadly, by default, a lawsuit settlement is going to be taxable unless we can clearly establish that it represents a non-taxable set of funds. Now, some of the other things that could be non-taxable would be personal injury awards, right, for physical injuries under Section 104. That's an exclusion in the code. That would be a non-taxable, uh, you know, lawsuit award. But most awards are going to be taxable. And the way you're going to get out is either it is a personal injury settlement or it represents restoring capital. Well, she's not claiming that somehow she was physically injured in this case by the attorney. She's claiming that effectively it's a tax-free return of capital that, you know, her ex got away with not giving her money, right? You know, they had the allegation of 75000 we know of that was that represented the community that she should have gotten, the additional community that she alleges she didn't get due to her attorney's failure to properly handle the case. So now we have this, right? The IRS. Now her attorney, interestingly enough, issued a 1099. Now this was interesting because the agreement was for $175,000. But what happens is the $175,000 she had to first pay her malpractice attorney $73,500, which was her attorney's fee, right? And so he received the settlement check. He deposits, you know, the amount. He sends her a check for the $101,500, and then he is has the right to keep the $73,500. Now, for reasons that aren't totally clear, he sent her, her, her own attorney, sent her a 1099 miscellaneous in the amount of 101500 That's the net amount issued to her, not the total of the 175 Now, most of you should think right off that's a problem because we all know, you know, that essentially lawsuit awards are fully, if they're taxable, the full amount of that's taxable, and then you would have to try to see if you can claim a deduction for the legal fees, and if you can, where. In this case, though, you know, he just reported the net amount. Now, the case goes on. The IRS has that 1099. She does kind of put it on the return, but then backs it off. 
So her line 21 other income for that year was zero, though she had a statement saying it was 101500 of fees. And then she went on to state and backed it off by taking it off. And the title was Misclassification of Lawsuit Recovery of Marital Assets. That took it off, got a zero. My guess is that her return gets flagged under the CP2000 program, you know, for it netted to zero. And she got a proposed assessment of tax based on the 101500 Now, she, of course, claims that, wait, wait, it, it's all a return of basically or a restoration of my capital. So it's not taxable. But there is a problem here you need to understand right away. When she starts protesting this, um, you know, and she does it, and she certainly does it, she, nobody pointed out to the IRS that under their theory of the case, they really should have gone to 175. Rather, it's just the 101,500. But that's still out there, and keep that in mind. Now, in this case, the tax court starts looking at, okay, how do we report such issues, right? And what the tax court will tell you, and this is where we get interesting, is yes, a recovery of capital is non-taxable. That's not a problem. But she has the burden of showing that what she received, and in this case, the entirety of what she received, or at least 101500 I guess, of what she received, represented payment to her for recovery of capital, basically to restore her capital to what it would have been. Now, when the tax court decides what's going on, she had a whole series of claims. The tax court first starts with the settlement agreement or the actual lawsuit award, the order from the judge. In this case, the court notes that the agreement doesn't really give any specific, doesn't make any specifics about what she's being paid. It is being paid to settle a malpractice claim. In fact, that's the only thing it references is this proposed malpractice claim, right? It's being, it's being set for this case, which related to malpractice. The court says, well, you know, normally we're not going to, you know, we're going to look first there. But if it's not clear from there, and maybe you can try to argue it's not, we then look to the underlying claims. Now, as you remember, her underlying claims, she had a litany of claims in there. But her claims never really seemed to state that she was going after this shortfall of assets, that that's what she was reimbursing based on. In fact, remember, she was going after punitive damages. She was going after the payments for her stress. She was going after all kinds of different theories for damages. And what the court says was, you know, we're not going to try to figure out when it covers all of these, you went after all these damage types. And the agreement itself does not limit the payment to various categories, does not provide any sort of allocation. The burden's on you to show that some of this is not taxable. Because you didn't meet that burden, the court says, you know, we're not going to go ahead and just, you know, magically say this represents lost property. I fully understand why she sees it that way. Come on, it was a divorce. At the end of the divorce, the big fight is over assets, right? Assets or maybe alimony payments back to a spouse. But it's really over property. I mean, if the attorney 
committed malpractice in a divorce, you can understand the theory that the damages must be for the fact that she should have gotten a higher award in the divorce case. But in any event, the court says we're not going there. Uh, being paid because your attorney committed malpractice is, is generally taxable. Um, it's only going to be non-taxable if you can show that it was for something more direct that you're tying directly to the damages. So the court went down there and said, we're not going to follow this lost property theory. Now, as I noted, the problem is normally when you're in a lawsuit, uh, your clients had a claim as a lawsuit settlement, you most often face this problem that the case itself, you know, your client ended up going after a ton of potential theories under which they should be paid that their attorney raised. And remember, the attorney normally, when we're talking about attorneys in, in these sorts of lawsuits who are litigators in these areas, they're not necessarily trained in tax very well. In fact, I would say the mere fact that her attorney didn't realize that if a 1099 was coming out, A, it probably shouldn't have come from him, but B, it also should have been for 175, not the net number. Um, you know, they don't tend to think about the tax implications or more to the point, they probably would say it's irrelevant. You know, our job is to get the client the highest level of payments out of this lawsuit, not to try to, you know, compromise our case dramatically by limiting our claims to only things that would be non-taxable if, if received. And it makes perfect sense. Conversely, in the settlement to get the money, right? And obviously she knows that if she doesn't sign the settlement, they'd have to go to court. That always raises a risk. Remember, she already has it turned out too well at court already. So it already raises a risk to go to court that you might not get anything. And the second problem is, you know, you go to court, you're going to pay a lot of more money to your attorney. Those legal fees are going to go up from the numbers she looked at just to get it to this point if we actually end up going to trial. So in order to get that done, you have to give in and sign this broad release, which also probably your counsel is just worrying about what it does to you in terms of you know your potential rights to be paid. And he may not very well be advising. In fact, they usually will tell you they don't advise on the tax aspects of it. So quite often we have these broad agreements that just aren't very good. Now that said, if in fact, it's pretty clear what the lawsuit was specifically about. Then even with the broad settlement, the courts will many times go ahead and said, okay, yeah, this is excludable because clearly everything was calculated and all the damages were predicated upon this loss of value in some piece of property. But in this case, nothing ever told us that she gave that sort of thing aside from the community property allegation. And remember, that was That was only about seventy-five thousand. She ends up getting one hundred seventy-five thousand. That's at least a hundred grand of this be totally unexplained as to why it was worth more to her and how it's there. Now let's talk about the other problem. Remember the fact that we noticed that the IRS was only asking us for tax on one hundred one thousand five hundred. Arguably, we can talk about the ethics of this in some ways, but arguably, had she just signed off on the IRS's proposed assessment, or she just sent back the CP2000 with the proposed tax to pay, um, she probably would have never paid tax on her attorney's fee. That would have netted out because, again, 
if you we've been I've been through enough CP two thousand notices, so have you. You probably know that clearly no person looked at that thing, right? Nobody had actually thought of through the details. Nobody had ever asked for or seen the settlement agreement. The IRS was going solely off the 1099. If she settled at that point, it would have been solely based on the 1099, which would have been much less by the attorney's fees than what she ultimately received. Now she decides, and I also have to believe that her counsel and any, you know, if there was any representation otherwise the case, had to know that, you know, that should have been 175. If it's taxable entirety, it should be the whole thing, not the net number. However, obviously, I do not expect that anybody challenging this ever sent in the settlement agreement. And it could very well have been, because I've heard people reason this way, well, I don't want to send that in because obviously if I send that in, they're going to see the actual number was 175, not the 101,500 that I actually that we actually paid tax on or, or that they're trying to get tax on. So that would be a negative. So they're going to try to finesse it and get it through the system without showing the settlement agreement. A, that makes it much tougher to get it through. The actual settlement agreement is always going to be the easier way to get it through by pointing out why that supports your position. But number two, now you got a problem. You're denied. They're saying, nope, we're locking, we're, we're digging our heels. We're going only with the 1099. Remember, the taxpayer has not produced additional information that would show why it's not because you may have withheld the settlement agreement because I don't want to show them the 175. But now when you go to court, that's going to mean a person, an attorney in the chief counsel's office will be able to see this. And they're going to obviously in discovery ask for the settlement agreement because that's going to be the key fact they're going to battle over in court is what does the settlement agreement say? And when counsel got the settlement agreement, they read it and said, wait a minute here. This should be 175. So at the end of the day, not only did she lose her case, not only did she have to pay tax on the 101 500 that they were originally going after, but the court said, IRS, you're right. She should pay tax on 175, not 101,500. And her attorney's fees, if they are deductible, were probably going to be at best miscellaneous itemized deductions and more to the point, not deductible for AMT purposes. So in many cases made them irrelevant. And today, post-TCJA, this one was before TCJA took effect, but post-TCJA, they're just not going to be deductible unless they're above the line. Those usually employment-related fees could get above the line or a, an actual business claim, let's say, that related to your trade or business on a Schedule C would be above the line. But that's not the case here. So it was also interesting, the risk taken here. There's a known IRS error. If you push, that error will likely be uncovered and you know will go through your responsibility to point out the IRS is fouling up. Probably don't have an error there. If you provide them with stuff and they miss it, they miss it. But the problem is, you know, when you go to court, you're going to move up the ladder in terms of the experience level of the personnel looking at this and the training of them. And so it's way more likely they will notice and raise the issue. Finally, let's talk about chief counsel advice 20. 21-23-007. This is Chief Counsel Advice looking at some interesting interactions between the interest deduction limitation rules of 163J added by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 
and the 481A accounting method adjustments as they relate to depreciable assets and what impact that has prior to 2022 when we start ignoring, you know, depreciation will reduce adjusted taxable income. The catch is, as this uh, CCA points out, the IRS ruled long ago that a change from an from one depreciation life to another is an accounting method change. In this particular case, we have a taxpayer changing their depreciable life on an asset from seven years to five years. Okay. Now, obviously, that's a change of accounting method. Under sections, under the rules, we compute that cumulative adjustment. I mean, what we would call in GAAP a cumulative adjustment and what we call here in tax a 41A adjustment, which is the cumulative difference in taxable income that would have been reported over the life of the taxpayer if you had been using the method you proposed to use versus the amount you had taken with the method you had used. Now, since you've been depreciating it over seven years, and you now say, well, it should have been five, we don't know how many years into this as we were, but bottom line, we should have taken more depreciation under the five-year rule than we would have the seven for any year. So we should be behind. That will result in a negative 41A adjustment. A negative 41A adjustment is taken into income entirely in the year of change. So let's say with these adjustments from five years, from seven years to five years, we have $200,000 of depreciation that should have been taken before the beginning of this year that was not taken because we were using too long of a life. Well, that $200,000 is used or we turn around and that is treated as an immediate deduction because it's negative, it's immediate. Now, if it was the other way, we'd been using seven years when we should have used five. We've been using five years, let's say, I should say, when we should have been using seven. So now we're going back to a longer life. In that case, we would have claimed more depreciation than we were allowed. In that case, we have a positive formula adjustment, and then it would be added back to income over four years, one quarter in the year of change, and then three quarters in the future years, subject to a special rule that if it's less than 50000 you can ask the IRS to allow you know, to basically you, you can just have it all done in one year if you request it that way, if it's less than fifty grand to get it done. So the question became though, if you remember under the rules for 163J, the interest limits, generally we're allowed to claim 30% of ATI plus business interest and a couple of other adjustments you make as currently deductible. Now, ATI through the end of this year is your client's taxable income generally, adjusted for various things, uh, including you add back the interest. Well, we'll keep doing that. But you also add back depreciation and amortization. And that's something that beginning in 2022 you won't do. Now, the question posed here is, okay, what do we do about this 481A adjustment? Technically, it is not depreciation under Section 167 or 168, but it relates to depreciation. Not surprisingly, during the years where this makes a difference, any 41A adjustment will go ahead and have to be adjusted out of ATI, which means for a year where it's a negative adjustment, you would essentially add that much back. 
for the year where it's a positive adjustment because you depreciated too much previously, you would essentially subtract that out of ATI. Now, as they note, all of that changes once we get to 2022 because now depreciation is, does not adjust taxable income. And apparently you just leave this stuff in there whenever it took place. So the advice determines the thing you should be doing is obviously, you know, pulling those things out through the end of 2021. This has been the current federal tax developments uh, for the week of June 14th. I know those of you in Texas and some of the other states uh, that were impacted by the winter uh, weather problem this year. Uh, you guys are in your due date week. That's ought to be fun. Uh, you know, where, where it's like, I already did that, and I don't really want to go back to it, so we'll let you guys handle it. So you guys can take care of that. We are going to be keeping our eye on any other developments. Again, so far, they're still at best negotiating over whether there'll be an infrastructure package, and if so, if there'll be any tax items as part of it. So we'll keep an eye on that, but so far, nothing to report there. Be looking for other IRS guidance and looking at the court cases. So, you know, join us back here next week. As always, I do try to watch out on the Connect sites for various state societies. So, you know, if you're in those societies, Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, Washington, you know, keep keep an eye and I'll, I'll see if I see a notice there in Minnesota, actually, too. You know, if I see a question come up that I think I might be able to help with, I will generally try to speak up on it. So, you know, keep your eye on that. Otherwise, we'll see you back here next week. And we'll talk about whatever news happening in the area of current federal tax developments.